Good morning and welcome to this Institute for Government and Royal College of Nursing event. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute. Thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on health and care. In the long distant days of 10 months ago, the Conservative Manifesto made some ambitious health and care promises. The party committed to providing world-class healthcare with 40 new hospitals, 50,000 more nurses, 6,000 more doctors, an extra 50 million general practice appointments a year, and a cross-party consensus on social care in which no one would be forced to sell their home. And before the coronavirus crisis hit, the government delivered its manifesto pledge to enshrine in law an extra £34 billion a year by 2024 for the NHS. However, while substantial at the time, this has paled in comparison to what has been needed to help public services cope with the disruptions caused by coronavirus. Since March, the government has approved £80 billion of spending for public services and test and trace, equivalent to two thirds of the annual NHS budget. And more may be needed just to maintain pre-coronavirus standards of care, given the unmet demand that's built up as a result of the disruption to services such as cancer screenings. So how realistic are the government's health and care pledges in light of these challenges? What services or aspects of care should the government prioritise in its spending decisions, and particularly in the planned multi-year spending review, or perhaps, as seems a bit more likely now, a single-year spending round? And which changes made during the crisis, be that in working practices, funding or the use of technology, could be extended beyond the pandemic? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by four fantastic speakers. Our first speaker will be Dean Russell, who's been a member of Parliament for Watford since the 2019 election and is a member of the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee. Second will be Dame Donna Kinnair, uh, the Chief Executive and General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. Third will be Nicholas Timmins, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund and former Public Policy Editor of the Financial Times. And last but not, by no means least, uh, will hopefully be Sir Bernard Jenkin MP, Member of the Public Accounts Committee and Chair of the Powerful Liaison Committee. Each of our speakers will make opening remarks. I'll then ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please submit them using the Q&A function. You can submit them while we're speaking and I'll then try to ask as many of them as possible. I'd also like to encourage you to tweet using the hashtag CPC20. Right, without further ado, I'll hand over to Dean Russell MP, our first speaker. Over to you, Dean. Thank you. Uh, uh, to give a, a broad overview, I mean, I think when you look at the manifesto that the Conservative Party put forward uh, last year, uh, we're delivering on on that in, a, in an unprecedented way. And, and coronavirus and the awfulness of, of the COVID pandemic has has uh, sped some of that up in many ways. Um, we've delivered the biggest cash boost in history for the NHS. We've enshrined um, the increase in law. Uh, we've invested an additional 33.9 billion in uh, frontline NHS services every year by 23-24, um, uh, largest and uh, longest funding settlement in history across the NHS, all of those things. And you can read all of those, no doubt, in um, much of the literature, I think, for the conference. But I think over the past um, seven, eight months, what we've seen is this uh, a, a nimbleness and agility in the NHS and, and care services, which I think is one of the bits that often isn't talked about. I think, you know, we, we've talked quite rightly about the incredible uh, delivery of seven Nightingale hospitals. Uh, but what often isn't talked about is the fact that in parallel to that, 99% of GPs uh, are now able to offer video consultations. I believe it was about 3% before that. Um, so, and we've also already got around 14,000 
new nurses in place based on the uh, 50,000 that was originally uh, or is, is the target overall. So I think there's lots of things that have been going on which have been you know, encouraged uh, by the COVID crisis. And it's been an awful time for so many. But I think you know, the NHS and care workers have stepped up so much. For me, there's sort of four areas, though, that I think are so important uh, within this. One is the agility piece. Um, agility uh, within the NHS or agility and the NHS is not, are not two words that necessarily often are, are used together. Um, oh, gosh, forgive me. There's, a, <laughs> there's an alarm in the background. Um, um, uh, yeah, hopefully that will uh, turn off soon. Um, the, uh, the agility of um, the NHS has been incredible. And I think some of that has been through going back to what I've talked about in the chamber, which is trusting our frontline workers to, to do what they're doing, uh, to um, trust them to, to make the right decisions because they've been working in those roles for a long time. And I think it's so important that we, we look again at some of the process that's been put in place over many decades, which has meant that red tape in my mind has bound the hands at times of, of our incredible NHS and care workers. Um, I'll give you one example. St John Ambulance, for example, uh, I spent some time with them recently and uh, they were they took me to a few hospitals that they've been working at. And if it hadn't been for the um, uh, for the crisis, they would never have been able to step on wards to help on wards the way that they've been able to. Uh, but because of the, the fact that we needed to move quickly, they were able to get on and help on wards and they've got the experience, you know, they they helping ambulances they do incredible work uh, but a year ago I was told um, uh, by by the staff at the hospital I was speaking to that actually that would not have been allowed or at least it would have taken so long and so much effort to get through the bureaucracy to enable it to happen that it would never have happened so I think there's things like that we need to make sure we don't snap back into that red tape uh, moving forward and I, I, I even asked this as a question to Matt Hancock um, in the chamber not so long back and he, he agreed that we need to make sure that we don't start to, to bind people with that red tape again but obviously with safeguards and um, all the checks in place. I think the other part that's really important um, that comes out from me and, and I've talked about this in the select committee the health and social care select committee is this parity of social care. I think it was really uh, really notable actually at the start of the pandemic uh, many people went out and said they were clapping for the NHS. And then over the time, thankfully, people then started to say it was clap for carers. And I think that was a uh, quite a big psychological shift, actually, that people started to see the importance and the role that social care workers have, as well as our incredible staff in the NHS. Because so much of what we do now and the future of the NHS, I don't think is just based on bricks and mortar. It's not just based on hospitals and GP surgeries, but it's also about care in the home. It's about using technology in a really smart way to help um, uh, patient pathways to look at how we use data in a better way. And I think when we look at that in that sense, actually, we need to have that parity. Um, in, in Watford, for example, I've been very proud that this past few weeks, I've been able to launch with the, the support of the Prime Minister, an initiative to train a thousand mental health first aiders. And um, I've been working with our local Chamber of Commerce on that, working with so many different amazing inspirational groups. But the reason for that is I think, you know, people are getting better at understanding mental health, understanding mental well-being is, a, is an important part of, of all of our lives and it affects us all. And I think actually that conversation needs to continue, but it's a, almost a culture shift. It's a behavioural shift. 
beyond what government can just fund for. It actually has to be part of the culture of the way we work as a society. And so therefore, social care is absolutely part of that. I've talked about this before that, you know, when you look at um, the, for a, just taking one example, if you took somebody who perhaps in their 50s was getting on-site, uh, onset um, arthritis, for example, um, you know that isn't a one-off situation. That's something that's going to affect their lives for many years, if not decades to come, unless there's a suddenly uh, a cure for it. So looking at it just as a medical issue, a physical issue, um, isn't the right way to do it in my mind. What we should be doing is saying, look, that's going to affect them in this way physically, but it's going to actually affect them um, through their mental well-being as well. It's going to limit what they might be able to do in 10, 20 years' time if it gets worse and worse. Um, what does that mean in terms of the care support they get? How do we manage that? And that means that I think over the next uh, few decades, we need to look also how we create a better single uh, profile for patients, which takes into account the holistic um, issues that they're having both in terms of social care, in terms of medical, in terms of mental well-being. Because if we do that, then actually I think we can find there's greater efficiencies. We can understand how these things really affect society and the economy. You know, if somebody who has uh, a severe uh, uh, issue, say in that instance with, um, with severe arthritis, there's certain things they might not be able to do. So therefore that's going to affect potentially their life and their jobs and so many other things. So again, looking at it from a patient perspective rather than a, a process perspective is so important. And underpinning that, I think that really comes into the role of technology. Um, technology, um, sadly, I think the, the conversations around technology have been marred by the, um, the issues uh, in the past around these big sort of white elephant te technology programs that have tried to be put into place and then not worked. But I think, again, linking the, those three together, when we look at technology now, technology can be, form, be more agile. I think we need to get away from the fears that people have had around uh, use of data, for example. You know, um, I think the you know, people are so easily uh, and happily giving away so much information to Facebook and Google and Twitter and whoever um, about their location, about what, what food they're eating, you know, every single part of their lives, who their friends are. Yet, if you ask them to do the same and give that information to someone like the NHS or to the government, then um, you'd probably find that they'd look at you with, with horror and shock and be worried about where that data is going to go. And so I think we have to really look again at, at, at perceptions around data, make sure that the safeguards are there, make sure that the, the, um, the security is there around patient data, but also look at how we can use it in a far more sophisticated way. Look at it, how we can wrap that data in technology around um, individuals, around patients, so that we can plan not just uh, for their next appointment or appointments, but actually over the next few decades, how do we best support them? And use that data on, on large scale to actually look at predictions, you know, use AI to identify um, how that, that data can be used to perhaps uh, find cures or find uh, find out ways that some patients improved more than others. And so I think those things are really important because then you've got the, the agility um, in terms of the way that the NHS um, adapts over time. You've got the parity of health and social care in terms of making sure there's a wraparound for patients. And then you've got the technology to support that. And underpinning all of that, absolutely, um, if I may for a couple more minutes, um, is absolutely looking at career pathways. Uh, one of the things as a volunteer at my local uh, Watford General Hospital, uh, which I'm very proud to say is one of the um, 
uh, West Hearts Hospital Trust is one of the recipients of the HIP six HIP, HIP one uh, uh, funding, which is, means we're one of the the six that will get the uh, funding for the new um, hospitals uh, across Watford and Hamel and um, and St Albans, um, and the, which is really wonderful news. But the reason why I say that is that actually we need to. What I've learned by doing the volunteering at, at my Watford General Hospital has been that actually it's a workplace. And I think quite often when um, the NHS is used as a political football, is that it's used as this sort of amorphous, you know, it's the, the logo and the brand. But actually, when you when I work in there, it's a workplace, you know, and you know, people want careers. They want to be able to know this progression. They want to know that they've got safe and, and high quality work um, environments. And I think on that front, it's so important that we, we look again at how we tie all these things together so that we have very clear career pathways. So if somebody wants to volunteer, what do they do next? Uh, you know, if they want to work in social care as a as a foot in the door, as it were, and they want to see what, what how they can help in that way, how do they move through their career in that way? So I think there's a lot there uh, around that. So, so those are the sort of three key points, agility, um, parity of social care, which requires uh, um, uh, a look again at technology as well, and also career pathways. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, I'm now going to hand over to Professor Dame Donnickner. I'm Donna, and I'm the General Secretary and Chief Executive of the Royal College of Nursing. I'm also a nurse, and I guess my job really is about amplifying the voices of our 450,000 nurses, nursing associates and nursing students working across the UK. I think the past few months have been exceptionally dif difficult, um, but actually the difficulties have been enduring for some time. I mean, if you think about when we entered this pandemic, thousands of nurses returned from retirement, student courses were disrupted and they stepped up and served, and staff were redeployed. Others like myself volunteered, and I volunteered as a critical care nurse in the past. Um, I volunteered at the Nightingale Hospital in the East End of London. And what I'd say is while it was true that any workforce or health system would have been pushed to breaking point by a pandemic of this magnitude, we were not prepared. And we weren't prepared because um, when you think about nursing, it's it really is a safety critical profession. And the simple fact is, is that we wouldn't consider flying an aeroplane without adequate numbers of staff. You wouldn't say, I can do this without a pilot. And the same principles are true for healthcare. So we had had a serious shortage of nursing for years and years, um, several administrations. And when I talk to people outside of nursing and I say that there are thousands of vacancies, they look stunned. And I take on uh, your point that actually it does start at a place base, but even the 50,000 vacancies that we have across the UK doesn't take into account the 110 vacancies, 10,000 vacancies in social care too. And if you think about it, the NHS is the, the source of training for all nurses across the pandemic. And we actually went into that pandemic with too few nurses. The situation was far tougher for all of us. I think there were difficult decisions taken and, and they were the right decisions. We had to close services and we had to disrupt treatments in order to meet the needs of our patients. 
um, because the services were already overstretched. But I think it recognized, the Public Accounts Committee recognizes that we are continually stuck in a cycle of firefighting. And hence, in order to help the NHS, we do need to fix the workforce problem. Clear signal that this government that, that asked for 50,000, it's a clear signal that this government is serious about closing that workforce gap. And we do need some transparency about how this target is met and what modelling is being used. Because actually, we also know that a third of our nurses are coming up to retirement age. And this is constantly with, her, with her, us because the nursing workforce has to date been an older generation. Um, and I think it's true to say that every member that I speak to are calling for urgent action to meet this workforce shortages. And one of the ways that we can take some action, we do know that um, there are several things. There are any pandemic, more people may want to become nurses. But at the other end of that, we know that some people will have had enough and seen enough death um, and want to leave. So nursing is a rewarding career. It does benefit society. It, it increases social mobility. But we do need people to be able to afford to train. While we've seen a rise in applications, um, more nursing students beginning university, the extra increase of, of, will be about 4,000 if they all graduate based on the same numbers last year. And it won't give us the new nurses that we need quickly. So there is something about the support that is given to nurses in order to help them train. It is really interesting that under this administration for the first time ever, we severed the relationship between the NHS and its ability to increase recruitment of students and actually deploy them in areas of shortage. And alongside that, all unions alongside the RCN are calling for an early and meaningful pay rise. Because not only have nurses seen the value of their salaries fall in real terms over the past decade, but our band five nurses who make up the largest group of nurses do have a real, time, real terms gap. Um, and actually, even though we've had pay rises, the NHS has relied on nurses needing to do extra bank and agency shifts to make sure that care is given to its patients and in order to make ends meet. And that's not conducive to patient safety. And what we're finding is that our recent survey has found that 37% of our respondents are thinking about leaving nursing and pay has to be a key driver for retention. So I think those are some of the things that I would like us to see, that we do need those 50,000 extra nurses that we've been promised. We do need um, nurses being looked after. We do need investment in the workforce. And um, actually, we do need to help students train better. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you very much, Donna. I'm now gonna hand over to Nicholas Timmons. Uh, well, to try and address the, the exam question, so to speak, and uh, how easily can the government meet its manifesto commitments on health and care? Uh, well, it's going to be very, very challenging. Um, uh, the one thing in its favour, I guess, is that assuming this is a five-year parliament, it's got till 2024 to get there. Uh, but the next year, two years, are going to be extremely difficult. Um, we've seen, courtesy of COVID, elective waiting times, treatment, wait, treatments for waiting time, uh, type operations and treatments have, you know, they fell in April. 
because of COVID. So that's built up demand. Uh, there are a million waiting over 18, over the 18 week target. And there are tens of thousands waiting every year. So just to get back on track is going to be very, very hard when we're told that uh, many parts of the NHS are because of the need for protective equipment when dealing with, with, with while the pandemic is on, we're operating at sort of 40% below normal capacity. Uh, and those waiting lists are large. And the government would need to remember that uh, back in the 2000s, when Labour tackled the very long waits, it uh, it took a long time and it cost billions and billions and billions of pounds. And I'd just say, like to take one tiny point of issue with uh, with Dean, that uh, it's very good that there's a 3.4% increase that's been enshrined in law for the NHS, but it's not the largest increase in its history. Uh, that you know, the, the, It's currently about 3.4% a year, and in the mid-2000s, Labour delivered 7% a year real over five years, which is not to say that the increase is not welcome. But there is clearly a huge challenge. Um, there have been some good things that have come out of the pandemic, I've uh, been talking to social care leaders recently, and clearly the NHS and social care are working together in some parts of the country much better and in very innovative ways. Uh, and we have seen uh, a lot more use of technology for more remote consultations. I'm slightly surprised at this figure that 99% of GPs offer video calls, or I must be in the 1%, but at least they are offering telephone calls, and that's a, you know, an improvement. Now, that won't work for everybody, but for those for whom it does, that's a huge improvement. So the challenge is large. Um, and, you know, along you know, the, the title of this is health and care. And the government is also committed to trying to sort out social care, which will also be enormously expensive to do. And all these all these financial challenges of the health and care system come will come at a time when there are also heavy demands for retraining for people thrown out of work. Uh, trying to maintain, you know, there's going to be an argument about maintaining the additional amount of money that the government put into universal credit to help people through the pandemic, which is proposing to remove. Uh, there's going to be huge demands on the exchequer. So it's going to be a very, very challenging time. Dick, uh, Nicholas, thank you uh, very much for that. Right. Um, I we don't seem to have Savan yet, so I'm going to move um, straight into questions. And um, Dean, I know you need to leave um, slightly before the end um, because you have some um, constituency business uh, to attend to. Um, so I just wanted um, to ask you, I mean, you talked to kind of a lot about some of the kind of positive changes there have been, particularly in kind of tech and data, et cetera, and kind of the hope that those can be continued beyond the crisis. Before that, and with the kind of the prospect of a, a second wave coming and kind of the normal pressures of winters, is there kind of anything more that you think the government could do between now and then to help the NHS and care system through the next six months? So uh, absolutely. And I think there's um, one of the things that was published just this past week was the um, Health and Social Care Select Committee report on on the on progress through the um, COVID crisis. So there's lots of learnings in there. Um, I think uh, in part, one of the things we've really got to tackle moving forward will be the uh, will be the backlog of people who uh, were awaiting surgeries, who were awaiting appointments. You know, that, that's uh, been a, a growing list. And despite the fact that actually, I recall um, strongly sort of making the point, and we were in the, the uh, committee and elsewhere about making sure patients felt safe still going into hospitals, 
there is still a, a, a concern people have um, around um, around going for for um, appointments and so on. And I think we've got to somehow get people to feel confident again going back into um, uh, to hospitals, uh, going back into to have uh, physical consultations. Uh, but also we need to have a very clear plan on how we're going to manage that backlog because that's going to have a, a detrimental effect for for a long time to come not just physically but mentally we had a witness on um the select committee who was talking about uh, i think it was a knee surgery if i recall correctly uh, that he was waiting to have and that that affected the entirety of his life you know so i think that's going to be a really big challenge for us um i think we also need to look at how we um how we maintain the support uh, for the NHS and care generally. I mean, one of the areas that I know I didn't really mention too actively was was the role that I've been doing with volunteering. I mean, it's only a tiny amount every week, but there's a huge number of unpaid carers. There's a, a huge number of volunteers um, that have been helping and supporting throughout the crisis. But the thing is now, as people are starting to go back to work, that's more of a challenge for them. Um, obviously, for unpaid carers, they will uh, undoubtedly continue whether they were working or not but for a lot of the volunteers they are now having to go back to work um, quite rightly so but that means that they're perhaps not as uh, available to help uh, but I, I definitely recommend uh, looking at the report that we put together we looked at many of the different aspects including workforce burnout one of the areas I was very conscious of throughout the crisis was um, staff mental health um, I actually spoke to Claire Murdoch who's the uh, head of the uh, head of mental health for the NHS during the select committee to say that we needed to make sure that the, the support is there for staff around mental health and mental well-being because the what I was seeing from speaking directly to um, to nurses and, and and staff within the hospitals was that th there was this constant drumbeat in the media um, around especially when say PPE was was one of the big issues um, uh, which made them scared to go into work you know and then when they were at work their families were at home. Um, in lockdown and their families were scared stiff even though actually they knew that from a staff perspective actually they had got the PPE they were fine they were able to work as they would do but their families then had huge amounts of anxiety back at home and so I actually asked her at the time if she could work to um, develop um, support for them and I believe that they did they did do that in terms of at least guidance and advice to to families so I think there's a whole range here but I think one of the things that's really important in my mind is that we have to look at this not just as a, uh, um, as a as a block, you know, NHS and social care. We've got to look at staff as real people in work in the workplace. How we support them and how we do that over this next few months. You know, they've had a really tough time over the past few months uh, with COVID. Um, and if there is a, I'm hopeful there won't be a full lockdown again. Um, but definitely, as a second wave does hit. Um, and especially with the combination of the potential of a flu, flu um, uh, coming through the winter crisis as well as usual, then what we need to do is make sure that they can be uh, motivated and sustained and supported. I mean, my my thanks are you know are so deep for all the the people who've worked in health and social care and all the unpaid workers and all the volunteers because they've done such an incredible job. Uh, but it isn't over. And I think the, the catch now is we need to make sure that they feel 100% supported over the coming months and the coming years. And and that um, as a government and as a society, they see that and they know that and that we can help them in every way that we can. Thank you. And I, I wonder if I could just ask you one more question before you have to run quickly. So I wonder if you could kind of explain in your kind of role uh, on the Health and Social Care Committee, kind of 
what plans will the committee have to kind of monitor the progress of the government's the kind of the key commitments that it's made for example on 50,000 more nurses how will you kind of uh, hold their feet to the fire over the over the coming years on that yeah i mean i i'd say that if you if you watch any of the select committees that we that we hold um including i'm actually on the joint committee for human uh, for human rights as well uh we've been definitely held, holding lots of fires to lots of feet uh, <laughs> to use your analogy and um, and looking at this in a lot of detail i mean the the recommendations you know are 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 um i always think it's so important to be a critical friend so to look at where the solutions will come where the uh, opportunities will come and we're we're looking at all of those different factors you know from training to technology to, uh, mental health through to um uh through to workforce burnout so those are all areas and i think when you look at um the the committee that jeremy hunt is the chair of the committee is brought together um with jeremy hunt absolutely doing an amazing job actually as the chair um it's really meant that we've been able to focus in on on the big issues but also not hide away from some of the details and i think one of the things that's been really powerful, I would say, that happened in our select committee, which I don't know whether it's a new thing, but as a new MP, I've personally found has been really uh, hard hitting, has been to get real witnesses, so patients, uh, as well as staff and as well as the sort of people at the top of the tree, as it were, um, to give evidence. And I think what that's meant is that um, those who were giving witnesses who are you know, whether it be Professor Whitty, Sir Patrick Valance, Sir Simon Stevens, you know, Matt Hancock, you know, you list all the all the people at the top of the uh, the chain, as it were. We've they've been on the calls and on uh, witnesses during this committees. Whilst we've all, we've also had patients sharing their very personal experiences, and I think that's been really important to give a, a holistic view to what's really happening. And I think that will help over the coming months and years to to make sure we're not just looking at targets. But we look at the impact of the targets, um, but we also look at the impact on real people, which ultimately is what this is all about. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Donna, we've had um, a few questions about um, recruitment. Um, clearly, kind of recruiting both internationally and domestically is going to be critical for meeting the target of 50,000 more nurses. Can you, what do you think the government needs to do on both fronts to meet that target? Well, I think it's um, the government are doing quite a lot. I'd, I'd have to acknowledge that I'm seeing um, international recruitment step up uh, right across the country. So um, I'm really pleased that MAC uh, recognised the importance of international recruitment for nursing and social care. And I, I'm really grateful that they've recommended that registered nurses remain on the shortage occupation list um, and senior care workers are also added. We know that much of our uh, care workforce is made up of people that come from a diverse community and internationally, and we support this recommendation. So it shouldn't be limited just to the senior care workers because all care workers, they come from a diverse uh, range of people from both uh, Europe and across the Commonwealth. So I think what we need to see is that the importance of these individuals to the team and that the fact that as we diversify routes into nursing, that, that these individuals are, offers opportunities. So I think um, one of the things that is problematic is that some of our home office policies make it difficult to access this skilled group of people and arbitrary barriers like high visa fees and immigration health surcharge 
um, on people that don't earn a huge amount of money make it um, unnecessary um, barriers, put, put unnecessary barriers in place. So I think what we need to see now is the um, Home Office taking on the recommendations from the MAC. Brilliant, thank you. So that's obviously on, on recruitment. We've got a question here about um, retention from the audience. So um, Mike Ballinger has asked, accepting that pay is an issue, what else needs to be done to retain experienced nurses and ensure they feel valued? Well, we did a survey and I have to say that pay was one of the, was the biggest contribution to value. I think it's really important that um, over the last few months, and I can say this as a, a lead in a profession, for the first time in my entire career, I don't have silly questions to answer, such as what do nurses do? Everybody's well aware of what nurses do now. So I think, um, you know, there are other things that can be done. We know that this has been a really tough time. We've talked about um, the issues of supporting mental health, but actually it's important to remember that sometimes it's not about supporting mem uh, mental health when you're actually going through a pandemic crisis. Those things often kick in after people stop and reflect. So sometimes we're rushing to give people mental health support, but actually it's not until sometimes the, the crisis has passed to a degree that people stop or have the time to stop. And we know that there's preparation with flu and the winter come in that we'll need. We will still need support. Um, you know, we got through the first pandemic by people like myself volunteering on the front line, people coming out of retirement. Um, and we don't have that opportunity because many of those volunteers will have to go back to their normal jobs. But we have to have a route in um, to ensure that this work, uh, workforce crisis, whether it is through volunteers or others, is abated um, because we still need those people. So I think it, it depending on how it goes, and none of us know what that's like, um, we, in order to ensure safe outcomes for our patient, we will still need the workforce because whether they build new hospitals, uh, whether we um, pick up the care that's been left while we focused on COVID, all of that is a recognition that we need people to deliver. Of course, AI and technology will go so far, but it isn't enough to, to give people the care that they need. So that I, I'd say help, uh, mental health support, um, step up on international recruitment, um, because we have a, a window of opportunity and we do need these people and um, focus on the uh, education of our nurses that are, are going through. We also need things like PPE. I know every, we have got enough, but it was not a fantastic, uh, it wasn't fantastic for any nurse, including myself, on a day-to-day -day basis, not knowing whether you'll have enough PPE to go in and serve those patients tomorrow. And that was in critical care. So I think it's uh, while it's fine that we, we've been reassured that there is enough PPE in the system, we need nurses, whether they're in communities, whether they're in healthcare system, uh, you know, care system, care homes, to in the community to have access to adequate protection. Thank you. Thank you. Um Nicholas, um, we talked a bit about the kind of uh, access to whether via telephone or kind of video um, consultations. Um, someone has asked, um, with access to services increasingly by telephone or online, um, when do you think NHS England are going to make it available for people who are hard of hearing? And I guess there are also questions about accessibility um, for, for others who might have kind of communications issues. Yeah, well, clearly, clearly those issues are there. 
Um, and, you know, I think I made the point and would make the point that this does not suit everybody and will not suit everybody. Uh, and, there, you know, clearly there are times when the physical examination is needed as well as the telephone consultation. But I do think there's been a bit of a shift. I was, I, my sense was always that clinicians, GPs, consultants were always terrified if they started doing this, they'd be overwhelmed and it would take all their time. And actually, I think they found it's more efficient. You get through things quicker. Uh, it's actually more convenient for the patient. If the, you know, if, if, if the clinician you need to talk to is running late, at least you're sitting home, home waiting for the call, not sitting around in a waiting room in a hospital or a GP surgery. So where it works, it works very well. Uh, clearly, effort will have to go in to A, try and tackle things like issues for people who are hard of hearing and issues for those people for whom it simply doesn't work. Uh, where we will need to carry on with the more old-fashioned approaches. Uh, and, you know, at the moment that is difficult. Uh, in, home, in time, we hope that will become easier. But I do think some of the changes we've seen will last and quite, and it would be a good thing that they do last. Donna, I, I wonder, as, as Nick mentioned there, kind of, the, the tech has been quite new for a lot of the staff as well as um, for patients and service users. Have, have your members kind of reflected back to you on how easy they found the kind of using this uh, more tech and if there's anything else that they need to make greater use of it? Um, I think that it, it's been astonishing actually because that the, the breadth of tech that we've been using in order to support patients in the community um, and hospital patients um, have been have increased and um, although it's as as um, Nicholas said, it doesn't suit everybody. So we do have to make sure that actually it's appropriate because people still do need human contact. But um, it, even I myself was subject to it in terms of some diagnostics and consultations, and it seemed to work well. So it works well for some members of the community, some members of the population. It won't work well for all, but in the main, Obviously, our aim is to treat and support patients and we will use whatever technology is available in a time of crisis to do so. So I think um, nurses have stepped up. They've learned to ask the questions when you can't actually feel and touch a patient that, that are useful. But actually, we know that technology alone won't suffice going forward. Thank you. Moving on, there's a, I've got a question here from um, Sam Thurgood, who's asked, uh, which in the panel's view will be more significant, the new hospital building programme, uh, and the government was again talking about that today, or more community care like diagnostics hubs? Nicholas, do you, do you have a view on which is going to be more significant for improving care? Uh, well, if we achieve the latter, I think that would be very significant. Um, but it's you know, it's, it's not proved easy in the past. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how well we manage to do it in future. I mean, the new hospitals clearly matter. Um, at the moment, they feel more like a big promise than a certainty. We don't have a capital plan set out for how we're going to, you know, how they're going to be built precisely over what period. Uh, and clearly, you, you do need to refurbish the hospital stock from time to time. And there are parts of the country and some of these schemes are crucial where there's been a need for a rebuild for a modern hospital for a long time. It would be great if those come along. But if we can get more diagnostic work done in the community, that will that will change care for the better for a lot of people. 
Thank you. Donna, do you have views on that as well? Yeah, I mean, like um, Nicholas, I would say that it's really important that the places that people receive care are up to scratch. So we can't have um, tired buildings that actually don't serve the purpose of, or needs of patients. But actually, if we could only uh, achieve where patients are treated in communities and diagnostics are available, we don't have the, the, the bottle blocks that we see in terms of everybody rushing to an acute site, um, care would be far better. I mean, I'm a public health nurse and I know that actually if you can keep people in their ho own homes and deliver care in their own setting, they actually sometimes have a better quality of life than going into a strange place and trying to receive care there. So I'm all my all my career, all 35 years of my career, I have been hoping for care in the community to be invested in and developed um, so that people can, so that we don't have this rush to the acute sector, an unnecessary rush sometimes in my view. Thank you. Um, I've had a question here uh, from uh, Thomas Reynolds who's asked, um, the NHS estimates the outstanding compensation claims against it is over £83 billion. Should the compensation system be reformed to keep more money for patient care? Donna, do you have thoughts on that? I've long said, um, and I will always say, that of course um, we do need to look at the compensation system. Um, clearly, if people have suffered harm, there's absolutely a, a need for them to be able to be supported if, we've if they have actually suffered harm. But how much better, when we talk about the NHS as a system, um, some of the safety issues are actually having adequate numbers of staff to treat patients. And we can't shy away from that. You know, if you think about the care it takes to deliver, the, the number of people it takes to deliver care, or the necessity of care. I mean, many of our patients are coming into an acute hospital with dementia. Keeping them safe is a challenge. And actually, when you don't have enough workforce, when you don't have enough nurses in order to deliver that care, that is sometimes what leads to the system errors or the harm to patients. Um, and every single time I, re I read a HISIB account, I'm really interested in some of the, the issues that compound these problems that we face. And having, you know, as I said, it's a safety critical industry. You need the people to, and staff, trained staff, to look after the patients. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna move on to another question. So we've got a question here from uh, Alex Kenny, who's asked, uh, with the winter and a possible second wave approaching, how can we prevent another decrease in specialist care in the community for people with long-term conditions like heart failure? Because uh, obviously uh, many uh, staff were redeployed uh, in response to the first wave. Uh, Nicholas, I might come to you first on that. Well, I mean, it's, it's yet another of the challenges that COVID throws up, isn't it? Um, I mean, the, one does have the impression that the health service is better placed at this stage than it was at the opening of the pandemic because it's learned a lot of lessons. Um, but there is going to be the challenge of keeping services at the community going well at the same time as we appear to be heading into the second wave and we may or may not get a flu epidemic as well. 
though for what it's worth, the evidence on that from Australia, where these things normally start, is it's not been bad this year, so that might help. Uh, but clearly it's, 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 it's balancing priorities, which is, the NHS always has to do, but in this, these particular circumstances, it has to do even more acutely. Donna, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's, it's, it, it is going to be challenging. There's no doubt about it. Um, the, the trick will be, can we maintain services so that we don't cause more harm post-pandemic or during any, any further spikes or outbreaks that we may face? Um, and, and I think it's absolutely got to be maintained now, um, particularly for treating long-term conditions. And, and very much, I think, the public can help by observing the rules on social distancing um, and I, th- uh, you know, so for me, there's something about working as communities. Communities can also help to step up and um, support some of their uh, other people in their communities. But I, I as Nicholas said, it's going to be a huge challenge because, uh, you know, at, at the time that we face the pandemic, we stop services and we know that we can't afford to do that because of the greater harm that's being caused. So somehow with heroic efforts, we are going to have to try to do both to maintain, you know, the diagnostics, the care that is required for those with long term conditions, as well as serve our communities um, with, you know, COVID if it, if it spikes again. Donna, we've got a, a few more questions coming about um, recruitment, which I'm going to direct your way. So David Heathcote has asked, um, does Donna think the £5,000 to £8,000 annual maintenance grant will attract uh, more people to study nursing? And is the whole package attractive or do we need to go further? I think absolutely I'm going to say we need to go further. We saw a real decline in the older age group, the people that actually had um, sometimes done other jobs and then realised um, that they wanted to become a nurse. And actually, many of um, many people, or, and particularly I remember one, who was a banker and had children herself and then turned to nursing. So I think it, the 5,000 to 8,000 goes some way. But if you think about a nursing as a career, uh, we spend 50% of our education in practice absolutely delivering care to patients. And therefore, there will be, we, we can't take a pub because I'm doing shift work. I can't supplement um, my fees uh, or um, work in a different sector sometimes. So it's incredibly difficult for us to do that. And actually, that's why I believe that removal of the bursary was a, a problematic thing to have done. Um, so the maintain some way to rectifying that. We've got to see how it works out. They, they aren't even getting it yet, or they're just starting to get it this month. So we do have, need to see whether that in, it, in and of itself helps to improve numbers. But I would urgently ask this government to review um, giving um, equivalent to a bursary to help people to study, because we end up with fees adding, um in the in the service. Thank you. I'm going to come to you with one um, final question and then I will um, end just uh, see if Nicholas has any final thoughts that he wants to share on this question or, or on anything else. So Donna, the final question for you is, um, 
the kind of the role that you think the apprenticeships will play in meeting workforce needs for example the uh, nursing associates and degree nursing apprenticeships and that was asked by adam chilvers i think actually they will play a huge role uh, we don't mind what route um, individuals come into the nursing profession as long as they're educated to that degree level to be able to give the care that is necessary. Um, so I think they will play a part in terms of um, the, the numbers uh, coming into the profession. But what we've found is actually the different routes into nursing is terribly confusing. You know, when you actually go out and speak to individuals thinking of becoming a nurse, there are many, there are different routes being um, played out that actually it's hard for people to get their head around. So actually, you know, from my members' view and my view is that absolutely apprenticeships will play a part. Um, nursing does require a level of, of education. So it's not that anybody can do it. You do need to be trained properly. And as long as that they're getting the adequate training um, and we're incentivizing them to be able to stay with it because apprenticeships uh, sounds great, but they still need to do 50% in practice and they still need to eat. Um, we, we, as long as that's happening and they're educated to the right standard to deliver safe and effective care, we're very welcoming. Thank you. And Nicholas, any final comments that you would like to make today? Well, just on, I suppose, on, on you know, the recruitment issue, because, um, you know, the, the, the workforce challenges in NHS faces are very considerable and you can apart from the finding the money that is going to be needed, you can have the money if you don't have the workforce, you can't deliver. So it's very important that we get that right and do it better. And there are great uncertainties around. I mean, even now, we still don't know what the effect of Brexit will finally be on the supply of what you might describe as overseas staff for both health and social care. Uh, so it's very important that the training here and what international recruitment we do works well. Uh, and the government's not classed uh, social uh, care workers as skilled workers so that they are caught by the immigration limits. So there are big challenges here. I think one of the good things is, I mean, Donna will correct me if I'm wrong, but there appears to be a considerable upsurge in people interested in a nursing or care career, uh, partly as a result of COVID-19. So that's a positive. Uh, the challenge would be getting them through the training and making sure they're fully qualified and able to practice. Great. Thank you. Um, with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Um, for those interested in these questions, please keep an eye out for uh, an upcoming Institute for Government uh, report that will look at how services, uh, including the NHS and social care, have been disrupted and have changed in response to this crisis. That will be out in about a month's time. Uh, thank you to our three speakers uh, for a great discussion. Uh, particular thanks to the Royal College of Nursing for partnering with us on this event. Uh, and thank you to all of those who have watched today and submitted questions. Goodbye. <laughs>